Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, artificial intelligence, friend or foe. You can see AI in its simplest form in the algorithms used by streaming services. A computer learns, in inverted commas, what we like based on our previous viewing or listening habits and then offers us more of the same. If you want to override the algorithm, then you can. But there are scarier possibilities in the future as AI develops fears that it could become too powerful. Elon Musk recently claimed that AI would eliminate the need for human jobs, which is great if you're a billionaire like him, but doesn't explain how the rest of us would earn enough to live. This poses big questions about who controls the technology and what their plans are for the rest of us. Will AI liberate us from the drudgery of boring admin or become a tool to control us? There are even doomsday scenarios in which the robots turn on humans, their creators, and then destroy us. Could science fiction become science fact? Let's hear from Kyle Taylor, the author of the Byline Times' little black book of artificial intelligence. Kyle, how are you? You're right. Yeah, I'm well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Crazy, crazy times. Have I described what artificial intelligence is accurately? Yeah, I think it's a really good description. I think the easiest way to think about it is it's basically a computer operating in a way that's similar to a human brain. And if you think about what a brain can do, the goal with AI is to be able to make computers do what brains do. But our brains are sometimes empathetic. They're sometimes irrational. AI I don't imagine in the short term anyway, will be empathetic or perhaps ever. I don't imagine it will ever be irrational because it is computer software. It isn't human. Yeah. And this is the fundamental difference. And there was a joke I saw recently that all the people who are working to build these artificial intelligence models are more robot-like humans. And you're right. You know, these computers don't have empathy. They are not making decisions that take into consideration things that are maybe not rational, right? So there's this historic constant test in ethics and philosophy called the trolley problem. I should just say that what you call trolleys, we might call trams in the UK, just in case anybody's still struggling (laughs) to get their head around that. And it's the idea that if you're driving a trolley and there are people in the tracks, if you stop the trolley, you kill everyone on it. But if you continue with the trolley, you kill everyone in the way of the track, right? And humans respond differently to that. So do I know the people on the trolley? Who are these people? Is there a way to save everyone? It becomes a really complex problem for a human. Artificial intelligence would go, okay, there are 17 people on the trolley. Peter would go, there are three in the way. You keep going to save the 17. Because it's making decisions solely in absolute real terms. And that isn't necessarily great when it comes to impact on people. And I think that that's the really important piece that we need to understand. And it doesn't just go to the AI itself, but it goes to the people who are programming the AI. One of the things I talk about in the book is that one of the most dangerous aspects of this whole conversation is that we're using human language to describe it. So it's thinking, it's learning, it's making a decision. Rather than calling it artificial intelligence, we should be calling it a computational logic bot. 
because we have to make sure that we are understanding and thinking about it as something separate from us. And that computational logic bot, again, can only make decisions based on the information that's given it. So when we look at social media and original algorithms, we see that society is racist, society is misogynist, society is homophobic. Well, guess what? So we're algorithms. If you're reflecting the society that we live in now, when you're building these things, then they then carry over the discrimination, the marginalization, and the problems that we see. It's not an improvement, it's mimicry. That opens up a really important discussion because one of the areas where AI is said to be potentially most valuable is healthcare. So you might have, for example, AI making the decision to switch off the ventilator of an older person because the programmer may be a younger person who doesn't value age. So you do have the risk of these inbuilt biases in the programming. Yeah, and for example, it could say okay, this ventilator should be turned off because keeping this person alive costs X and their utility would remain. It does not equal what the cost is. And therefore, rationally, this person shouldn't be kept alive. I will say, and I think it's important to understand that not everything about this has to be bad, nor will it be bad. Medicine is a great example of one where in the research space, it can be hugely useful. So one of the examples I talk about in the book is assessing MRI information. So some of these AI systems can scan 10,000 MRIs and look for similarities in the data set in the time it would take a human to look at three or four. And they can also hold all that information at once, whereas a human can't. By the time you get to scan 10, you're going, now wait, what was the thing I saw on scan one? So pattern finding in the research space to inform human decision-making is a great positive benefit. And I call that siloed artificial intelligence, very specific input in, very specific output. But where we're getting to now are these AI tools that are artificial general intelligence, which is decision-making and following patterns to determine something without human intervention all the time. And we're doing it in a space that is entirely privatized, where the primary objective of these companies is to maximize profit. And that is the underlying issue. We're not talking about how can I make a BMW or any automobile that's faster than this other automobile. We're talking about what happens when I build a thing that can fundamentally impact humanity because my primary objective is making money. And I guess one of the key arenas in which that will play out is the workforce. If you can say to an employer, you've got 15,000 people doing a pretty straightforward admin job and it's repetitious, the workers themselves may find it tedious, we can get a robot to do this work. You may need one or two people to supervise the outcome to see what the decisions are and just maybe double check. But potentially you could see the vast bulk of those 15,000 jobs disappearing, whoosh, because it's cheaper and more efficient for the company to hire the artificial intelligence program. Exactly. And these are the societal impacts that we must be considering more holistically. So it's a perfect example. You're looking at a situation where what decision will a company make? They'll make a decision to cut labor costs to increase profit margins. Some estimates you can look at an AI 
being able to do what 10 people do with one operator. So you're laying off nine out of 10 people. Those people are now looking for some form of welfare benefit from the state. But 25% of tax receipts to the state come from taxing people's labor. So tax receipts collapse. Now everyone's going to the state looking for money because they don't have a job, but the state has no money to give to them because tax receipts have collapsed. And that's a very fast ripple. I was looking at some reports by very conservative entities like Goldman Sachs that say 60, 70, 80% of jobs will be impacted by AI in Europe and North America in the next five years. So this isn't way off. That has to do with the rate of learning. But when I say the societal level impacts, you could see another version of this where we say, okay, you know what? Actually, the goal is for people to work fewer hours. The goal is for people to work less dangerous jobs. And so for every automation that you develop, we're going to say, okay, that's taxed in a way that funds the state to deliver to people a universal basic income or some other model. I mean, that is the utopia. Computers doing all the hard stuff and us having time to like listen to music and hang out and write poetry. But if you're a tech billionaire right now, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, how can I help as many people as possible? Or are you thinking, how can I be the world's first trillionaire? It's pretty obvious to me what they're going to do. And without states intervening, saying, okay, here are the rules of the game, not just let's put in some guardrails so you don't end humanity, but let's tell you how this is all going to go down because the underlying objective is how we improve society for people. Then we're going to be in a place that is, quite frankly, deeply deeply worrying. The UK government recently held a summit chaired by Rishi Sunak to look at some of the dangers associated with AI. You've painted a potentially utopian picture of what AI could create, which is a more or less work-free society in which the tech giants are taxed and We can perhaps live very fulfilling lives with some kind of universal basic income. Do you think that that world is one that is being imagined by our politicians generally? Oh, absolutely not. I think the primary objective of the UK government in particular and and the US government, who are home to almost all of the major AI players, is to attract investment. It's the classic, how do we keep these companies here model? that in the tech world doesn't work in the same way that it used to work with manufacturing, because you don't need as many people to do these things, they're service-based and so forth. That summit was upsetting because you see these grand pronouncements at the end of, oh, these companies have agreed to allow external testing of their, what they call frontier systems, so their most advanced AI model. And you dig a little deeper and you see it's entirely voluntary. There are no requirements. There's no regulatory body. It's making these companies share. And if you're OpenAI, which is one of the major companies, and you're Google, which controls another one of the major companies, why are you going to put out one of your products to be safety tested if it means that the other competitor now knows what you're able to do? China, which attended the summit, was not party to that agreement. And China is actually taking a much more state-based oversight approach to AI development, which is unsurprising. But when you're not taking into account the fact that they're also AI leaders with 
a population of 1.5 billion people, then how effective is anything? And just to say, I mean, this is the underlying issue with digital and technology. You've got a country saying, oh, well, we're going to do this guardrail. We're going to require these licenses to corporations and technology that are borderless. And this stuff exists online. And this is one of the key tensions, isn't it? Because if you're a government and looking to bring in investment in order to have a tax base, then you're fearful of regulating too heavily because you will scare away the investment. You are fearful of taxing too heavily because you will scare away the investment. But by bringing in the investment and allowing AI to develop at its own pace without any regulation, ultimately, you'll be undermining the tax base anyway. Exactly. And people hear UBI and they think, oh, you're a lefty socialist communist. Universal basic income could not be more capitalist. It's maintaining a competitive marketplace where there are consumers who can participate in it and corporations who are playing a role in ensuring the overall functioning of a capitalist society. And that, to me, is capitalism's last chance. I feel like we're at the stage where they figure this issue out, where people are able to live and afford to buy things, or people are going to go, why are we doing this system? What is this? There's a trillionaire. One person has a trillion dollars, and I can't buy food. And that leads to much broader social unrest. A few people that I talk about in the book believe that AI is now a greater threat than climate change because of the pace of change. I'll give you one example. Right now, these models, they learn at about a rate 10,000 times the rate of human learning. And just one upgrade of the OpenAI ChatGPT software, it became 100,000 times more capable in six months. And that's exponential growth. That 100,000 times, times 100,000, we could be in a situation where the AI could affect humanity on a societal level within five years. I raised that question right at the start, Kyle, about whether science fiction could become science fact, whether these robots, for want of a better word, could ultimately turn on their creators and decide that the planet would be better off without human beings. Is that fanciful? This is actually where I think that talking about it is similar to talking about climate change. When people were told a billion people could be climate migrants and there could be huge swathes of the earth that are unlivable, people thought, oh, that's ridiculous. It's so outrageous. And I think, okay, maybe we're 50 years away, but maybe we're five from that type of impact. But if we're not acknowledging the possibility of it, then we have no way of engaging with a solution for it. But I still think that those secondary risks around jobs and the workplace, and the second one that I haven't spoken about yet, but disinformation and breakdown of reality are even more prescient in this moment. Like these imaging tools, some people may remember the Pope in a puffer jacket, or if you search for that now, you'd find it very quickly. And that seems innocuous enough. Oh, here's the Pope wearing a puffer jacket. What happens when somebody says ahead of the U.S. presidential election, make a video of Joe Biden burning the Bible that then goes viral in the Midwest and sparks riots against Joe Biden because of something that's completely fake? We're already living in the world where nothing you see or hear in the digital space you can be sure is true. That's already a reality we live in. And we're seeing it time and again 
We even did one internally where we trained an AI voice bot on 30 seconds of my voice. And maybe my mom would have known the difference, but it would be indistinguishable to somebody who doesn't know me well. That's on 30 seconds of audio. So you've got huge threat to jobs, huge threat to social cohesion through breakdown of reality. You know, existential threat maybe, but those two things should be enough. So on that question of disinformation and what reality is then, that is going to need some regulation, some state intervention, because we know already from what we understand of social media, there are bad actors out there who will look to seize these tools and act maliciously with them. Yeah, and so we saw this in the U.S., in the much lauded agreement that the White House made with the largest companies, one of which was the labeling of AI-generated content. So two things on that. First, again, all of this is totally voluntary. Totally voluntary. And these tech companies have an interest in the outcome of an election because do they want a more concerned, higher-regulation Democratic Party or do they want a free-riding libertarian Republican Party setting the rules for them? So they have an interest. But the second is the idea that we're stopping the conversation at, well, it's been labeled as generated by AI, as if that matters once it's in the ecosystem. AI-generated content is just prohibited, particularly in the context of political speech in the next election as a dry run of what might happen more broadly. They're just going to put a little thing on that this is made by AI. You know, somebody who wants to believe something is true will believe it is true. And you cannot add fuel to this fire, especially when it's profitable for these corporations. We saw recently the sacking of Sam Altman from a company called OpenAI, a revolt then from the workers against the board who had pushed Altman out, and Altman's return. What are we to make of that? Yeah, so this gets to the heart of that for-profit issue. So OpenAI was actually originally set up as a not-for-profit to ethically develop AI. Then they realized it was really hard to raise funds to build AI models when there was no profit incentive or return on investment. So they created a profit wing to fundraise. And now that it's the most significant and influential AI company in the world, we're seeing this realization that, oh, actually, we want to make a ton of money from this. And it was actually the board who was trying to fiduciary duty to maintain those nonprofit principles that made the decision to remove Altman. And what's happened now is the decision's been undone, but all those people who voted to remove him have been removed from the board and then replaced with loyalists. So what we had was a very small check, and now we have no check. The reason was because Microsoft, which is a for-profit company, was going to swoop him up and take all the staff. And again, Without an overarching mission, vision, objective rules set by government that prioritize safety and society over profit, all we're going to see in the space is any way possible to make as much money as possible. You don't have to be a libertarian Republican or conservative to be wary of overweening state power. States can sometimes be bad actors themselves and have their own motives, depending on who is governing them at a particular moment. Your prescription seems to be for greater regulation, greater government intervention. You've outlined the risks of failing to do that. 
but there are also risks involved in doing that. Sure. And I think the China example is a good one. We talk about the ability to do good regulation being indirectly correlated to how much people trust their governments. So if you have high trust governments, it's easier to regulate corporations. If you have low trust governments, people tend to actually trust corporations more than governments. For me, it's a question of international agreement and alignment around a way forward, a step one. Two, at the very least, binding requirements for reporting and investigations of these tools. But three, what I would like to see is the government setting challenges for corporations around issues that would benefit from AI. How can we reduce misdiagnosis of cancer screenings by 50%? A challenge. And if you win that challenge, you win our money to do it. Objective-driven development of AI. So Japan is actually doing this. And they've tested it first in the agriculture space. They obviously have a very aging population. Young people, shocker, they're not becoming farmers. And the Japanese government said, okay, there's a national challenge. Who can develop an AI bot that can pick fruit only when it's ripe and preserve at least 90% of it in a greenhouse environment? They set that challenge out. Companies bid and said, we can do it. They got funding to develop their initial designs, presented. There was a winner. And now the government is investing in that corporation to drive this, right? What's funny is we think that governments have never been interventionist in economies. Really, you only have to go back to the 1970s to see huge roles in government in driving innovation through regulation and competition that led to major societal benefits. But we've just lost touch with the idea that that's something government does. And I'd like to see government doing that again. Government may also ask AI tech companies to develop weaponry sophisticated weaponry far in excess of anything that we've seen before in terms of its potency. For sure. And that's similar to nuclear weapons where they already exist, but the objective should be a complete ban, chemical, biological weapons as well. There's a lot of investment in military robots. I mean, one of the things I wrote in the book is that we're going to be living in some dystopian hellscape future where nobody has a job and people in power are fighting robot wars in the desert. Like, what? The most incredible advanced technology that's ever existed for humans. And the thing we decide to do with it is like blow each other up. Crazy, crazy. Carl, it promises to be an absolutely fantastic read. The Little Black Book of Artificial Intelligence, published by Byline Books. Where can people get hold of it? So just littleblackaibook.com, and that'll take you straight to the sales page littleblackaibook.com. Brilliant. Carl, thank you so much for your time. Before we go, just a reminder that you can read Kyle in the Byline Times, and it is our fantastic monthly newspaper, available now on some selected newsstands. But if you want to be sure of getting a copy, do head over to bylinetimes.com and take out a subscription. The good news is that if you do take out a subscription or buy it on a newsstand, You'll be helping to support this podcast, so please do that if you can. Head over to bylinetimes.com. This has been a We Bring Audio production produced by me, Adrian Goldberg, and Harvey White in Birmingham for the Byline Times. We'll see you again very soon, but for now, thank you and goodbye. Cheers.